Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. As we're considering uh, worship and what the Bible says about it, is the church really necessary for us to truly worship God? Because we've talked about our lives being worshipped, we've talked about different ways that we verbally worship the Lord through our testimonies, through, through singing, through prayer, these different elements. But do we really need to, to, to worship the Lord as a church or as the corporate people of God? I'd say yes, we do. I believe scripture presents this in many ways that to, for us to truly worship the Lord in all the ways that, that He is worthy and He's provided for us, we have to gather together because there's an element of worship that we cannot engage in individually. And we see this throughout scripture that ever since God began a calling a people for Himself back with Israel, there has been an essential element of corporate worship. For example, back in Exodus chapter 9, when the Lord is bringing his people out of Egypt, he's going through the ten plagues, Pharaoh tries to barter uh, with Israel. It's like, well, okay, you guys can you guys can go worship the Lord, but who's really going to go? You know, he didn't want to give up the entire nation. And in Exodus 9 verse 10, Moses responds, Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters. We, and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. In response, Moses was saying, we all have to go. We're going to worship the Lord. Uh, we're to hold a feast for him. We all have to be there. Our young ones, our, our old, our sons, our daughters, we all have to be there as his people. It wouldn't just be enough for a few of us to show up there. And later on, when the Lord is giving the law and describing, here's how Israel ought to, ought to order themselves, ought to worship, the different laws. He's going through the different feasts that they ought to hold annually. And he says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. Those were three wait, three times a year when all the men had to gather together. They couldn't just celebrate those just as families or in small groups by themselves throughout the land of Israel. They had to gather together at a particular place to worship the Lord as, as the nation. And this is going to carry through all the way into the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, the first part of Isaiah 2 talks about a time of coming restoration when it will be uh, gl glorious. You know, war will be removed. Uh, the Lord will, will be, uh, the mountain of the Lord will be exalted. And the idea of coming together for corporate worship is still going to be present. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be exalted as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many in many peoples shall come and say come 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of our God, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There was going to be there's going to be corporate worship in the millennial kingdom, that the peoples, the nations, not just Israel, but all the nations shall come to the mountain of the house of the Lord to worship, to learn from Him, to to, to respond in worship. And so, if that was true for ancient Israel, if it's going to be true in the in the millennial kingdom, it's certainly true for us now in the church age as churches. That there's a special way that God meets with us. There's a special way that we worship when we gather together. There's a couple places in the New Testament that point this out uh, specifically. Although the context uh, for Matthew 18, this part, this, at least this part of Matthew 18, is about church discipline, there is a point that Jesus makes about how he gathers with, that he is present with us in a unique way when we are gathered together. He's talking about at the final stage of church discipline, it's to be brought the matters to be brought before the church, and the the church is to appeal to the to the person who's being disciplined to repent, and if they don't, he is to be um, excommunicated, not shunned in the sense of you're not even supposed to talk to the person, but there's supposed to be a, a break in that fellowship a significant way. But Jesus is talking about the, the binding and loosing, and the authority of the gathered church, and why that is true. In Matthew 18, 20, he says this, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now certainly Jesus is with each of us, and he will be till he returns. Uh, different places in scripture tell us that plainly. But Jesus is testifying that when a local church gathers together as a church, there is a unique way that he, ha that he is present with us. Paul testifies about this as well in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talks about the church being the temple of God. Now in chapter 6, a few chapters later, he's going to talk about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that is certainly true. But here in chapter 3, he's going to apply that term, the temple, God's temple or temple of the Holy Spirit, to the, to the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now we may be thinking, well, that sounds pretty individual, individualistic. I mean, how do we know he's talking about the church here? Well, for two reasons. Uh, contextually, He's talking about building up the church and the unity that ought to exist and uh, how we should be working towards that instead of dividing different factions, the different people that we follow. So contextually, he's talking about the church, not individuals. And second, the, you, the, the, the instances of you that are in those two verses there are plural. So uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart point this out as an example in their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which is an excellent resource about studying different genres of scripture. But the, the point about them being, the, the use being plural there, is that it takes the whole church to be the temple of God. 
that we're not just going around saying, well, because I'm temple, of the, I'm because I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, I don't need God's people. No, that's not true. Yes, God's Spirit dwells within us, and there is a a sense in which we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, chapter six of First Corinthians. But there is a unique way that we are the temple of God, as a church, all of us being together. So there is a certain way that God is uniquely present with us when we gather as a church and as we live as a, as a community of faith together as a congregation. It doesn't mean that we're not the church if uh, some people just don't show up that week. But the idea of living together in a committed way as a congregation and assembling regularly. When we do that, there's a special way, a unique way that God meets with us. So we see, we see from the examples in the Old Testament about Israel uh, pointing ahead to the Millennial Kingdom and even now the church age, there is an element of worship that takes the corporate body, that takes the community of faith or the covenant community, whatever term you want to use. But specifically now this time, the, the church best exemplifies that, that uh, the term church, that we have to gather together as local congregations for a form of to, to worship the Lord in all the ways that he is certainly deserving. Yes, as individuals, by our lives, individually, by, uh, by our testimonies, our prayers, our singing. But there is a certain element of worship that we, ha that we can only engage in when we gather as God's people. So with that said, how do we do that? If it's important for us to gather to worship God, how do we worship him as his corporate body? Well, there's, there's a few ways, that, several ways that scripture points out through declaring praise and singing and prayer. Those are similar to what we've talked about last week about our individual worship, but they're also true as the body gathers together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, chapters 11 through 14, all of that is talking about the assembled church and what, how, what should happen when the church gathers together in different elements. And Paul's addressing particular issues that had gotten out of whack there in Corinth. Um, some issues of things that gotten askew and misplaced emphasis. So he's trying to correct that, but he's dealing with what happens when the church gathers together and the elements of declaring God's praise, of declaring truth, testimonies, um, declaring truth about God's words, singing, prayer. All of that is found there in those four chapters, especially chapter 14. And we're not going to get into the whole... Uh, discussion about spiritual gifts in this episode about the gifts of tongues and prophecy and what does all that mean that's not really the point of, of referencing those chapters the point is is that there is a way that we gather together as God's people and Paul talks about us praising the Lord um, of us giving thanks of us praying and doing so in an intelligible way and then the whole not just as individuals, but the whole church gathering in together. Because he says one of the reasons for there to be an interpreter with the gift of tongues is so the church can say amen. Not just amen in the sense of, okay, that's what we're supposed to say. But the amen, the, the word amen means so be it. Yes, this is true. It, it means that the church is joined in with the thanksgiving. The church is joining in with the praise and with the prayer. Uh, we're to be singing together all these elements as a body, as a, a corporate a gathering. So we see there in 1 Corinthians that 
declaring praise and and singing and prayers, all of those have their place in corporate worship. Yes, we do those individually, but there's a special uh, way that we engage in those as as the body, as a church. Another way that we worship is through offerings. And now we often use the phrase tithes and offerings, and that's not necessarily wrong, but um, the, the the New Testament focuses upon offerings, um, not in the sense of burnt offerings, but monetarily. Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight uh, verses one through fifteen is one of the places that talks about this. There's a few different places in Scripture, but it talks about us giving as to the Lord. It uses that phrase. It also talks about it being an act of grace, our giving financially for the Lord's service. And specifically there is talking about using those resources to help needy help needy Christians different places that are going through trials. But the act of giving of our finances for the Lord's service is done for Him. It's a, done, a way that we honor Him. Another part of that is giving to support those who have devoted themselves to the proclamation of the gospel. Of First Corinthians nine, it talks about that being for preachers, but also for missionaries as well. Uh, the church at Philippi, they had connected with Paul and committed to him uh, of giving financially to him throughout an extended period of his of his ministry. And when he when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he was in jail in in Rome. And they had sent a gift to him. And Paul says in Philippians 4 verses 14 through 18, he talks about that and their support. And he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift, uh, the gift you sent, a, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The Philippian church had given a monetary gift may not have been coins, but somehow a way of supporting Paul financially that Paul describes as an offering. He's using worship language there to describe the gift they get they gave to support him. So yes, our offerings are a form of worship to the Lord. We are honoring him, saying that, that his work is important and that if he's called us to give uh, to others to support them, as, as we're able, uh, that's one of the things Paul emphasizes in different places, is is giving as you're able according to what the Lord has given it. One person may give a smaller amount than someone else, but based on their resources, it was a sacrificial gift that they gave, or that they, they were giving it authentically from the heart. It wasn't a show. All those things are uh, at play there as we honor the Lord. It, it doesn't matter about the particular dollar amount, but the idea of giving as we are able as a form of honoring the Lord supporting his work supporting his work and supporting his people that's a form of worship another way that we worship is submitting to the preached word Paul makes this point in second Corinthians and second Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 there where he uses some of his last instructions to Timothy and, but Timothy was placed at Ephesus to try to help uh, correct some errors there at the church and try to bring things back into a, to a right order. So in the opening part of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God, in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living 
and and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and authority excuse me with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths so Paul's emphasis there is upon what Timothy's responsibility was was to preach the word but that also implies that that the church has to listen to the preached word to the faithful preaching of God's word because in the latter times and the end times Paul is saying people aren't going to submit aren't going to want to submit to that they aren't going to want to honor what the Lord has spoken they'd rather hear it be affirmed uh, have their ears tickled uh, to feel good about themselves and God's word doesn't always do that that it convicts us of our sin it's not a pat on the back telling us we're doing a good job yes there is comfort there is encouragement in in God's word but encouraging us and comforting us to follow the Lord it's not affirming us and just oh you're, you're good enough in yourself but yet that's the message people want to hear and so when people turn away from listening to the truth they're turning away from the Lord. They're not honoring Him or His authority. But conversely, one way that they, they do honor the Lord, one the way, way that we do submit to His authority and show that He is worthy of our submission, our obedience, is submitting to what He has said. And it's listening to the preached Word. Is that we should gather together to hear God's Word faithfully uh, preached and taught. This was even exemplified in, in Israel as well, in Nehemiah chapter 8. With the return of the exiles, they gathered together as the whole people, the, the, the adults, the children, they come together to hear God's word faithfully taught in a way that they could understand. So listening to and submitting to the preached word is a form of worship. Another uh, One other form of worship to talk about is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a form of worship that we cannot engage in by ourselves. That it is essentially a corporate act, a corporate act of worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26 is where Paul specifically gives the instructions about how the Lord's Supper is supposed to be handled. And he says that as we do so, as we engage in the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming Christ's death. Well, that's worship. That is a saying that he, this is what saves us. This is our identity. We are honoring him. We are giving glory to his name, pointing to his death that has saved us and proclaiming that. But Paul's point in the surrounding verses is that this has to be engaged in corporately together, not as individuals. He makes this point very clear and uh, a little bit earlier in that chapter in verses 20 through 22. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's a supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, we have to understand that when the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was part of an actual meal. It wasn't just the, the wafers and the juice that we often use today. It was, it was part of an actual meal that they were doing. But Paul's point where it was like, yeah, okay, you guys are coming, to, you guys are physically present in the same location, but the way that you're engaging this completely undermines and destroys your unity that you profess to have as the people of God. Because each person was doing it themselves. They were partaking of the elements, yes, but in their own way, by themselves, not waiting for one another. And Paul's saying, when you do that, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. Yes, you're having the bread, and yes, you're having the wine or the juice, but that's not the Lord's Supper, because an essential element of the Lord's Supper is unity in the body. That's exemplified by people taking it together. Not meaning that they have to eat it at the exact same second, but the idea of not this one group, they're taking it now, and five, ten minutes later, some other group's doing it, and then maybe 30 minutes later, some other group is having some uh, have, partaking of the elements. But together, as the people of God, as a church, celebrating this together. And if we don't do that, we're not really partaking in the Lord's Supper. So all that to say, celebrating communion is a corporate act of worship, and it can't be participated in any, in any other way. So those are some elements of corporate worship that the Bible points out that, uh, yes, yeah, some elements that we can do by ourselves, like singing and prayer, and we should, but there's a certain way that we worship the Lord as His people when we gather as a church, whether it's through testimony, declaring praise, singing and prayer, uh, through submitting to the preached word, through our offerings, and through the Lord's Supper. All of those are ways that we worship the Lord as a church. So with that said, how do we arrange those? What's the order that we go through those? How much do we emphasis do we place on different things? You know, how much time do we put place on singing rather than preaching, vice versa? What kind of guidelines do we have? Or is there a set order that we have? Well, there's not. The New Testament gives us great freedom with how we are to engage with these, how we arrange them, our, our liturgy, if you will. And not mean that liturgy doesn't just mean responsive readings or written out prayers or things like that. It has to do with the arrangement of these elements of worship. And there's nowhere in the New Testament that we see an order of service. First Corinthians chapter 14 does talk a lot about what happens when the church gathers together. But Paul's being corrective there. He's not providing an exhaustive manual about everything a church is supposed to do when it gathers. Rather, he's correcting some issues that have arisen with the abuse of the spiritual gifts there. But he does talk about there being an order to what happens. And so each church and church tradition, they have freedom to be able to arrange these as the Lord leads them. And it's going to be based on differences, based on context, uh, the people who are involved and what type of freedoms they have as a nation, whether they're an underground church, whether they're an open church in the West, uh, different examples there. You know, some churches place more emphasis upon singing and have maybe have a shorter sermon. Other ones will only have a few songs but have a much longer sermon. Uh, there's freedom in that. Some 
participate in the Lord's Supper every single week, some once a month, some once a quarter. There's variety in that. We're not bound to a specific order. But what we should be doing is seeking to pursue all of these and other elements that the Scripture may point out about corporate worship, that we seek to engage in those in a faithful way that is honoring Him from the heart. There's other resources that uh, that go that talk about this and talk about other nuances and other guiding principles about our corporate worship. Cor- the book Corporate Worship by Matt Merker is an excellent resource. It's not really long, eh, but it's, it's quite helpful. And uh, I, I was encouraged by it, and I thought he had a lot of good insights to it. For an article about singing and how there's a, an important element of singing as part of God's corporate people, uh, Bob Coughlin has a great article. Words of Worship. What happens when we sing? That's linked here in the description. Um, it's put out by Desiring God, but it's a, an article that Bob Coughlin wrote about 15 years ago or so, but it, it's a great article. And then if you're looking in for a little more of a technical, I wouldn't say not quite geeky, but a little more technical read about how did churches actually put all these things into, uh, into practice? We see that we're to worship the Lord, to ascribe honor and worth to Him as His corporate people. These different elements, but how do we actually do that in real life? A a resource would be Worship by the Book. It's edited by D.A. Carson. But one of the unique features about this is that after Carson's extended talk about what is worship and the elements of corporate worship, they go through and look at the different ways that church different church traditions have ordered their services. Mark Ashton does some in there from an Anglican perspective. Kent Hughes from Reformed Baptist, and then, and then the late Tim Keller from a Presbyterian perspective. And it goes through and shows different orders of service and why they were arranged that way and stuff. So, like I said, it's more of a technical book. Not everyone probably uh, enjoy that, but if you want to get into some more of the nitty-gritty of how that's played out, that would be a resource there. But. All of those, especially corporate works by Matt Merker, it would be a great resource if you want to dive into some more of what Scripture teaches about worshiping as the corporate people of God. Because while we can worship the Lord individually, and we should, there's a certain way of worship that we cannot engage in if we do not gather as local churches and the, the importance of that. So I hope that was helpful. So over the series, we've talked different elements of worship in the more of the, you can say, positive sense of here's what we should do. But there's also some places in Scripture where God says, I reject your worship. I reject your worship, and here's why. And that's what we're going to be getting into the next week is getting to the heart of the matter because uh, the, the one of the true marks of worship is that it comes from the heart. It's not so much about externals and different forms or things like that that we can focus upon so much, but it really comes down to a matter of the heart. And we'll get into that next week and looking at why God places such emphasis upon that. But until then, read the Word and take your stand. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope this episode was helpful and an encouragement. For more resources, check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Registered Bible, the Holy Bible English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers. Used by permission, all rights reserved.